Welcome to the McGuffin Men. I'm Alex, and with me, as usual, is James. Uh, before we get started or during uh, recording, whatever you want, you can check out our website, themcguffinmen.com. Uh, we most recently talked about McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, before that was Nomadland. Before that was Bad Trip. And before that was A Most Wanted Man. So yeah, you can check that out, themcguffinmen.com. <laughs> All right, James. All right. So uh, today's film is a 1969 film that will probably be a part of every edition of Trivial Pursuit until the end of humanity. Uh, Sean Connery finally stepped aside from one of the more iconic roles in film history. Um, And he was replaced by an unknown model, still the only one-time Bond, George Lazenby. And after editing all previous Bond films and directing Second Unit on You Only Live Twice, the previous one, Peter Hunt was finally able to direct a series, a film in the series for himself. Um, I found a, you're not going to believe this, Steven Soderbergh quote um, about this movie that I think sums up why it's why it's really interesting and, and fun to watch. Um, shot to shot, this movie is beautiful in a way none of the other Bond films are. The anamorphic compositions are re- relentlessly arresting and the editing patterns of the action sequences are totally bananas. It's like Peter Peter Hunt took all the film ideas of the French New Wave and blended them with Eisenstein and a Cuisinart to create a grammar that still tops today's how fast can you cut aesthetic because the difference here is that each of the shots, no matter how short, are real shots, not just additional coverage from the hosing it down school of action. So there is a unification of the aesthetic uh, that doesn't exist in any other Bond film. And I, I, that's kind of how I feel. As somebody who has not seen every Bond movie, um, but loves big action movies and the history of big action movies, uh, it has always been weird to me that I don't have a strong affinity for... Um, the bond series but i do have a strong affinity for this film because i it's it's the only bond film that i feel like has ever full-on surprised me like i remember the first time watching this movie the ending my jaw literally dropped like not an expression i was like that's the ending like it's incredible um and that i think that sort of i know that's a big surprise at the end but i think that sort of uh willingness to um, break from what your expectations are of a Bond movie, uh, both in, I mean, specifically in the way that the film is shot, shot and cut. Um, but I think the, the breaking of expectations is the thing that is the consistent, um, theme of this movie and the thing that makes me like it, you know? Yeah. Are you so surprised that she dies or that they end it so quickly after she dies? A little bit of both. Um, definitely. So like the comparison point is, so the reason that works is because uh, it happens fast. Like the wedding sequence happens fast and um, it's not like a long drawn out scene. And then they're just driving off. And you know, that, that scene, as that scene is happening, you're like, okay, this is, it's weird. This feels like the movie is over already. Usually the wedding, the wedding caps the movie, you know? Um, But then it just happens so fast uh, when the shooting happens and then the movie ends so quickly. Um, the comparison for that within the the Bond series is I don't know how well you remember Casino Royale, but I think it's Ava Green's character um, who, you know, they they sort of have uh, have some sort of relationship through Casino Royale. I don't remember it very well. I haven't seen it in like fifteen years. But um, then they go off together on like a vacation. It's where Bond is using all his Sony products, and it just looks like an advertisement, and it goes on for so long. Um, 
but you know something else is going to happen because it's just they're just luxuriating on a boat you know it's even more and they're really taking their time with it so you're just like okay cool so we're just gonna wait for her to definitely get killed (laughs) you know um and that this movie doesn't give you enough time to think that and i think that's why it's so surprising it's also very surprising because i think uh George Lazenby's far and away the best moment of his performance is in that last scene and uh, seeing Bond like that is really interesting. Um, and it's just this this whole combination of things, you know? And you also, it's because you also forget that Bunt uh, didn't really have an ending. So like you forget she's still alive. You kind of just assume that she would be dead, you know, in the finale. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's, it's tough because th- there's so much here that makes it, a singular movie and like with within the bond franchise and the whole thing about this franchise is that it's supposed to be this one character and um he's kind of ageless it's sort of timeless you know we keep seeing modern technology um and only really in the last daniel craig ones is there sort of significant change where they try to you know make this character actually a human yeah. um so that's that's sort of another turn to it as well um and he has signs of showing uh, emotions or you know uh, romantic relationships with females and not just um using them as sex objects Mm -hmm. for you know whatever purpose but there's still an equal amount of using women as sex sex there's also a ton of that is um so it's yeah, it's just really, really exceptional in that way that uh, it just feels simultaneously really isolated from the series, um, and in some ways, sort of the quintessential one. Like, it, it just on how much of this movie is, you know. So you had the Steven Soderbergh quote, you know, he is a director who clearly loves this movie more than the other Bonds, um, or at least has a certain affection for it that I, I read a lot of that same um, article when he talked about it. He, he blogged about it at one point yes. where a lot of that stuff comes from. Exactly. Um, he seems to like the Bond movies as confection for the most part. Like he, he finds them entertaining. That's why he's seen them. And, you know, they're, they're just important action movies and that he's sort of someone who likes heist movies and genre movies. It's really not crazy for him to like Bond movies. Um, but his appreciation for under Majesty's Secret Services seems to be a lot more genuine. Um, he, he clearly thinks of it as more of a film than just a, sort of a genre movie. Um, and it's it's interesting that it is such an outlier in so many ways in that so Soderbergh loves it. Uh, Nolan says it's his favorite one. Um, it seems to be the one that provides Mike Myers the most ammunition <laughs> for Austin Powers. Um, which doesn't necessarily make it the most quintessential film, but I do think that has some credibility. Um, And that's what blows my mind is that it really does walk this line of being so singular and almost an anomaly, but at the same time is so undeniably the exact, (laughs) you know, content that we think of as Bond. Yeah. Uh, And that's what I'm still watching it again even though i've seen it multiple times i still can't quite negotiate those two ideas how it how it's so different and how it's so much the the quintessential thing 
Yeah, so I think I think to me the thing that makes it feel more like an oddity outside of other than like something that I would consider like a truly great movie um is that it feels like all throughout the movie like like what you're saying it's sort of this this idea of halfway between two ideas like they were unsure whether or not to just do a new version of Connery or whether to do a fully new version of Bond because there are there are moments in this movie i think the 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 moments where Lazenby is the worst um in this movie are specific moments where he's just doing things the way that or he's doing things as written which is, are written as the way that Sean Connery would have played the character yeah. and um I mean, maybe you can't really know this in the 1960s that Sean Connery is going to go down as like one of the most uh, the most beloved film stars uh, of a 50 year period of time, you know. Um, so you don't know not to imitate him yet, but they just they never fully let Lazenby be himself and they never fully commit to the idea of having him replicate exactly what Connery does. And that that runs throughout the script. And I think that's the bounce back, uh, the thing that they're bouncing between. Um, that you were discussing. And I thought an anecdote that was uh, that sort of nicely tied that up is I was watching this movie uh, Becoming Bond, which, which is sort of like a, a long form, this American life slash drunk history thing about George Lazenby's life. Like it's just a long interview with him. It's very, it's very entertaining. It's directed by the guy who made Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Um, and it's just this hour and a half long interview. It's very interesting. Um, but he talks about how, when he's doing the the first one of the first things he shot was for the gunshot opening um where he was being asked specifically to do it just like connery like just walk and turn and shoot and the first time he did it he just sort of dropped to one knee and the people who were shooting it were uh were just like what what was that and he's like oh no sorry i just did it instinctively and then they're just like no no just do it like connery and then they end up using the one that he does where he drops to his knee you know and i think that that, um, in a nutshell, uh, to accidentally quote uh, Austin Powers, is um, sort of sums up how Lazenby never really, never really had a chance because the movie didn't know what they wanted. You know, because when they told them to do something Connery would do, they used the thing that was more George Lazenby, and so they never, they never really allowed Lazenby to be Lazenby because they were always asking for Connery. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's 100% right, what you're saying. And I think um, you do, like, that. that is a really good encapsulation of that. Um, but I think you'll agree, it, it can't just be his performance. You know, there, there's so many things about this movie that aren't up to him that make it so odd. You know, this is the only time this person directed this uh, a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few gadgets in this one, which is like name five things about a Bond movie. And that's going to be up there. Right. Yeah. Um, it's there. It's this little safe cracking photocopying thing, which is one of the most believable gadgets. You know, oh, what yeah. I mean? this is something that someone in this role should have. Um, you know, it's anachronistic now, but at the time it makes all the sense in the world. Um, it's cool how it's delivered to him, but it's still entirely believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of those things where they're doing something that is, as I said, such a stereotypical Bond thing to have the gadget come at the perfect time. But um, it's done in a way that you would imagine someone in an intelligence service doing it. Yeah. It's a believable item. It's delivered, uh, you know, with 
some strings being pulled, but not not in an unbelievable way. Um, so that's sort of an anomaly as well. Uh, you could see Bourne and Nikki doing something similar in yeah, in a Bourne yeah, movie, you know? Exactly, hundred percent. And then speaking of that, the the fights are in this. This is part of what Soderbergh was getting to, but the fight editing is. Uh, you know something we don't see a ton of in bond it's so, um, so awesome <laughs> well, yeah. and especially for the time period uh and then there's slow-mo and flashback which i i'm understanding is the only time they use that up until this point at least i still don't know if they do it uh, I'm oh flashback has, has been done since then for sure but mm-hmm. um and then a really direct form of breaking the fourth wall oh, they yeah. look Cameron says this ever happened to the other fellow or whatever. I, I'm sure there are examples in more modern Bond films of them breaking the fourth wall just because it's such an iconic franchise that there has to be some meta commentary about filmmaking or the Bond franchise or whatever. But there, I don't think that there's any so direct and especially making a movie in the Bond franchise after Austin Powers. I think they have to, you know, stay pretty far away from that mm-hmm. meta line that. Mm-hmm you'd have to know stuff about bond and read into it successfully. They wouldn't be so on the nose about it as they are here. Um, so yeah, it, th- there's so many ways that this is something that's on its own. And I think this is a metal one that happens so far after the fact, but, and you probably in, in maybe in the becoming bond documentary, there is more about this, but it seems like Lazenby was sort of convinced that bond wasn't going to continue or wasn't going to continue as is. And that's part of the reason he won only wanted to do one it sounded like he had a hard time making this film as well mm-hmm. um but he said something like in the era of of uh woodstock and easy rider james bond just wouldn't continue to exist and that's totally believable someone who's just so clean cut always doing the right thing um there's every reason to believe that that character is just not going to make it in the 70s and that's something that he couldn't have seen when he took this project on or um even in the making of it but that's something that just puts it so out there as um again such an anomaly it's such an aberration that uh he shows up to the premiere with you know long hair and a beard just just so Mm anti-bond but so in a way forward looking but there's no way that that sort of metatextual interpretation of it wasn't available to him at the time and that's just one thing that the producers of this movie couldn't have really known but when you look at it in the retrospective um through a retrospective lens which is the lens that people seem to be looking at it and appreciating this movie so much for now um that's really wild to me yeah for sure and i think that that line the other fellow line that you mentioned that's a perfect example of something that connery could pull off but very few others could you know and that's um because like the Connery performance as Bond is somebody who is just above everything. <laughs> like that's kind of his thing. He comes off like such an asshole in those movies. Um, and that, that sort of almost like a Chevy Chase or Bill Murray character where it's just like the world <laughs> exists for me, you know, and it's just uh, Connery's just, or Bond is just more of an action star version of that. And somebody who's cracking wise nonstop. But, um, but yeah. And what, and what you're saying about, him him leaving it's it seems like he just had sort of a real rough time um and i he has told many different versions of the same of of uh why he didn't want to continue um there's he wasn't he never signed the contract while they were making the movie um so 
because they didn't want to sign a seven picture deal. Um, but then by not signing it, he it allowed the producers to get rid of him for no money. Um, if if they didn't like him, which they didn't. Um, but also like that's part of the entertainment of that becoming Bond movie is that George Lazenby tells a lot of stories that can't possibly be true. That's kind of the the pos- the the idea of the movie and it makes it fun. But um, but yeah, I just I don't know. There's just, there's just, I, I still can't wrap my head around it. There's so many things <laughs> conflicting in the movie. But um, the thing that, I don't know about the, the 70s thing, because I feel, I, I, I can see how somebody would think that. But I think as people who weren't alive then, we don't, we don't really have a feel for how it felt to be alive in 1969. Um, yeah. But I do think that the idea of feeling like the franchise is over with this movie while you're making this movie that follows this series of events just seems so, so shocking to me, <laughs> you know, like you were going to end this six film series with his wife getting murdered and then a hard cut. Yeah. yeah like that, that's wild to me. Yeah. Well, I know, but at the same time, it feels like that is a sense of closure, even though it's such a short ending. Um, but at the same time, it feels like now this person has to get revenge or that's not truly a send off. So, yeah, well, so the, has to be more. Well, and there's an element to just sort of flying by the seat of your pants that exists in this franchise um, and a lot of other big budget franchises, uh, the Mission Impossible one, um, Christopher McQuarrie, the way that they do it now is he, he describes it as basically you just sort of have to let mission be what mission's going to be because you have these ideas for set pieces and then you have to write write the movie around it. Um, and that's how you get some, some pieces of the uh, franchise that are more entertaining than others. Um, and when it works perfectly, it's something like Fallout that's extremely entertaining, even though they were writing scenes the day they were shooting them. Um, but uh, <coughs> sorry, the um, the version of that with the Bond movies as it's happening now is or sorry, in the time period that we're talking about is that this movie like the idea like in this movie, we're supposed to believe James Bond hasn't met Blowfield, even though Blowfield is introduced in in the previous film. And so these, these, those two movies, you only live twice and, and on her majesty's secret service, they're like flopped chronology. And the idea was he was supposed to uh, go to Japan to get Blofeld to avenge his wife's death. But for some reason, due to like rights issues with Thunderball, which was the previous movie that it was already finished. Like they couldn't do the movies in sequence and then they just went with it. And it's, it's very convoluted and I'm still confused by it even having read about it but but i think that's the that's something that really feeds into the idea that you know we're looking at it 50 years later and being like why is it this like this why didn't they just come up with one idea it's like because they never had a point where they had all of the pieces in place they you don't like it's never done until it's shot and it's constantly evolving until it's shot because there's so much money at stake and so many elements uh to to keep in play you know balls to keep in play (laughs) Why isn't this consistent? Because there is warm weather at a ski hill, so yes. we couldn't do the movie we wanted to do, so we did the other movie or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and... And that's... it's a franchise that we need to hit a date so that we can get on to the next one, because this makes our <laughs> our company so much money. You know, it's that sort of thing. And just that, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that this, this film was one of the ones that was closest to a novel. You know, this was mm-hmm. actually close to the source material and sometimes sometimes these movies are as faithful to source material as taking the title 
and then doing everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. talk about how, um, you know, how, how wild this can be sometimes and how sometimes you stick to the, what, what you have and sometimes you don't. And sometimes, uh, you know, weather or rights issues or a contract dispute, uh, these things, you know, look so concrete when they're done and you look back at them with a certain lens. Uh, and that's just not the way that, that they were made. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, so to look at that chronology, this is after you only live twice, which I think is pretty well derided as really cartoony. Oh, and yeah. Just uh, like that and uh, Moonraker and... I think Moonraker is a Roger Moore one, isn't it? No, it is, but I just mean of the ones when we look back on the Bond franchise. Oh, okay, I got you. At, you know, people really love Goldfinger. People love Goldeneye. Um, From Russia with Love, is, which is basically like a James Bond in a bootleg Hitchcock movie. Like, people love that one. Yeah, there are ones that people sort of, in public opinion and critical opinion, just generally tend to gravitate to certain ones. Um, you Only Live Twice, people see as sort of overwrought and just, just pretty goofy. Um, it's very goofy. I will say I've seen probably 80% of the Bond movies. You Only Live Twice is one of the most fun ones, for sure. For what I, <laughs> for what I enjoy out of Bond movies, that movie's a blast. There's, yeah, there are some wild action sequences in there. Yeah, just the distinction between that one and this, I think it kind of caught people off guard. And I think it's one of the things that actually sort of helped it in the long run. Um, it, it always feels, it feels weird to call any Bond movie somewhat realistic, but <laughs> this one at least has that going for it at times. Definitely yeah. not 100% of the time because, uh, I don't know, Blofeld skiing or Blofeld, you know, having already met Bond and now he puts on a kilt and is no longer recognizable. Yeah. Um, you know, as we said, it, it doesn't always make sense, but one of the things that I think um, does work for that and why it aged well and why I think some of these directors uh, might not be as ashamed about saying that this one is good is that there is a, and Soderbergh points this out, there's a female character in this that's not just a cartoon. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who speaks her mind has something of a plot line and definitely not a ton you know not a completely not a deep character study by any means but um relative to to what we are used to with bond up in that point and then for i don't know a few decades later even after that um this is a much more you know shaded character than than we're used to so um that's something that i think only looks better as time passes that this character has something to her yes i will say the bar as you sort of alluded to the bar is extremely low there yes um i will also say that uh tracy when she's introduced she's introduced with a shot of her breasts and when she's introduced reintroduced later after having not been in the film for a long time uh she's reintroduced by a shot of her legs um so still a lot of objectification before there's personification you know and and i i really think that um like like we said it's a it's a very low bar it's just the fact that she pushes back against men at all that it's basically like considered a success for a woman in a bond movie um i think that most of what why people think that um she's a compelling character by the standards of of um bond women who just are historically not accurate representations of women and just horrible representations of women uh, is that Diana Rigg is really good in this movie. And yeah. I think that's the main thing for Tracy seeming like a character. It's not how she's written because she's written like a, 
a woman in 1969 still um like a, a movie woman in 1969 and <laughs> and i think there's just something about her personality or some i i i don't think i've seen her in anything else um i know she was emma peel in the avengers but um there's just there's a personality to her that uh like so many different good actors you can't necessarily put put your finger on but you know it's there you know you know this person is watchable and you know this person makes somebody who is still a cardboard cutout sort of character um into more than what they are it's what connery did with james bond you know it's it's that sort of thing it's like this is a this is a character that through your personality you can make seem more interesting than they actually are you know yeah i think that's right i think there's a i think there's more to her on the page than bond girls get up to that point yes. um yeah even that phrase doesn't feel good nope. um but i think you're 100 right that she actualizes what little's there to you know it's full capacity yeah absolutely like a more like a person than um most people in a similar role would be allowed to do or be able to do i should say yeah and she like literally takes the wheel in a in an action sequence um as well that's something that we didn't point out that's that's one of the um things that sort of makes her stand out and uh to go with my point that diana rigg is amazing in this movie her facial expressions like in her close-ups when she's in the stock car race they're so good like her tongue is kind of sticking out of her mouth like she's she's like michael jordan focusing and it's just so i don't know there's something so compelling about those close-ups i think she's she's just fantastic in this movie yeah did you want to say anything more about the the action or the fights or any of I mean the big so the bigger the fights the less interested or sorry the bigger the action sequences the less exciting they are to me because um I think all the action sequences in this movie are awesome um I think they're so cool but the the things in this movie that that are really exciting for me action wise are the smaller action sequences because those um those really help illustrate what is really great about this movie and the uh the style of those sequences like so you remember that that um, <clears throat> excuse me. There, there's a bit early on. I think it's in the hotel sequence, hotel room, when he goes to meet her for caviar in the hotel room and gets attacked. Um, there's now, is this is this caviar north of the Caspian or? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not. I did not have a single bite of it on the way into the room, so I, I don't know. Um, the yeah, when the the henchman sort of uh, attacks him with a chair, like you can see him lift the chair up above his head and then there's clearly a jump cut before he strikes. And I think they just cut out like three frames or something just to make it move that much faster. And when um, Peter, I was reading an interview with Peter Hunt talking about his contributions to the Bond franchise and, and um, what he did as an editor. And he sort of um, in his own words described it as well, in, in movies in 1960, you when somebody gets into a car, you show somebody walk up to the car, you show somebody open the car door, and you show somebody get in the car. What we did was just sort of cut out all of all of the things you don't need. Like, you just, I'm going to the car, and then hard cut to being in the car. And that, that over the course of a movie, um, changes the pacing uh, of everything. It just makes it feel like a much faster-paced movie, especially when, when it's released into a world where you know it's movies like i just described um and the editing in on her majesty's secret service feels like it's just even faster to the point where like i said you're cutting out three frames 
of a chair just being held uh, above somebody's head just to make that that action faster. And um, I think part of that, part of the reason you feel the freedom to do that is also because of the time the movie was released in, in 1969, when um, people are still... The majority of, of movies that you watch in your life at this point are projected on film, which is like a physical thing that has to get transported to the theater and then has to get spliced by the projectionist. And a lot of times in that process, you have to lose a frame here and there. And I know I've mentioned this on, on other um, other podcasts, but like I think editors, if they were really gutsy, felt more free because of that, because you could cut out a, f- a frame of the film and maybe the viewer would just assume that it was lost due to projection uh related issues and but i think this movie pushes that cranks it to 11 you know like i think that's so cool and um there's you know there's a jump cut between a guy like on the ground and rushing towards tackling uh james bond and it cuts away from him like well he's halfway getting up and then he's just a foot ahead it's just this such a weird jump cut but it's so cool um but i think the thing the sequence that really sums it all up is um and just the idea of the action sequences in this movie is that because it is an incredibly fast cut movie in the action sequences incredibly um yeah and sped up like it's like over cranked to use a mm-hmm. term that makes sense at the time but um it's it's it moves fast when they it, some of them some of the action scenes more than others but it is it is uh, clearly that the the film is just moving faster than 24 frames frames per second yeah and actually there's a there's a fight sequence in you only live twice that uh really feels like um basically the experimental lab for what they would do and on her majesty's secret service because it 100 percent is sped up and there are these like slightly weird uh cuts in it um and it just sort of felt like maybe peter hunt was was experimenting with things that he knew he would get to uh, when he knew he would get to direct in the next movie. And they just let him keep some of these, or they liked some of the ideas. Um, but yeah, that, that, so a little bit later, there's that hallway fight, right? Yeah. Um, and you can, if you just walk, if you look at those frames, because it's very fast, the, the shots are on screen for a very short amount of time. Um, and there's zooms happening and all these things in even within these really short shots. But if you sort of pause and screenshot every single shot of that sequence, it's this everything is composed and it's like there there is a backbone of uh, of ideas. It's like we're gonna do this shot, we're gonna do this shot, we're gonna do this shot. And then they cut them together however fits. But excuse me, simply because there was an idea, um, an idea underlying, underlying uh underlying the the franticness that will come in the editing room but it's because all of those things are individual shots um that it that work as individual shots is what makes the sequence work you know we get zooms on knives and zooms on hands and we get all these exaggerated echoey sound effects like the because they're supposed to sound like they're in this this hallway where sound would bounce around but they yeah. all work as individual shots and what happens after that very short sequence is probably like eight seconds we get bond gets into the door and we get this um these quick 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 cuts in the hallway and then he steps inside the door and he's holding that knife and the camera pushes in on him and it's this big wide shot while he's uh basically posing and it's it's a shot that's maybe as long as the whole fight sequence you know <laughs> and it's just like fast 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 slow you know and and it's that sort of pacing that exists all throughout the movie and that's just the most prominent example of where where uh 
is most obvious like stylistically and where it works the best i think because that is i rewind it every time it's so cool <laughs> yeah i it, when they do um you can tell when they do when they are in that mode of let's do things fast and then they take time to to slow it down um one of the uh just before they do one of their downhill sequences skiing uh they've sort of flipped that switch and he even throws his goggles on in, in fast pace mm -hmm. uh like that that's sped up and it just it gets you sort of it's just the first uh the first few seconds of this sequence that it, it, it's going to be fast and then um you get one of the longest falls in history as one of these guys falls off a cliff i love that and shot so much it's it's such a cool shot and then because they don't do the snowy stuff in austin powers but it, it, it seems so comical to me how long that fall goes on for mm -hmm. um it it's like the other guys it's the shot in the other guys yeah <laughs> but it's it's it is still interesting to me like it it feels like 30 percent of bond action sequences are in the snow uh -huh. and because this one is so effective and i know that um some of them bleed together because so many of them are just car chases in European cities and things like that. And this one is a different color scheme because of the white. And uh, it's just so much different because it's activity. And I know this isn't the only movie that they're skiing in, but it is the um, first one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's still, I don't know. It, it just feels so effective that it's just overrepresented in kind of bond history because um it's really compelling and some of those shots like that and some of them are goofy and some of them are just really really dynamic and interesting um he had get lots of guts might be even by bond quip standards pretty pretty bad <laughs> but then he's branched off also gives it a run for its money in the same movie mm -hmm. um uh, and you know so again just just the way that this movie does the fast and the slow does the funny and the wildly interesting um at the same time and I, I think the the stuff of him on the cable of the cable cars and just you worry about his hands getting caught in the wheel and him ending up on top of the car. Mm -hmm. um, it still is gripping and that even feels sort of Hitchcocky. And, you know, it's the, the stakes aren't huge. You know, it still is our, our protagonist maybe be losing his life. But that's not the moment where that everything hinges on. But it's one that is I don't know. I, I feel weirdly like really drawn in by that kind of stuff. And I thought it, they they do a few moments of of that same sort of suspense instead of just action really well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think um, all those things work and, you know, and, and that, that sequence of the cable car starts with him being like banished to somewhere with a clear exit, <laughs> you know, like, um, so it still has that, that silly bond villain uh, element of like, well, why not just shoot him? You know, if you really want him to die that, that much, but it is still just like a good sequence, you know? And, yeah. Yeah. Should point out that the this is the quintessential Bond villain as far as Austin Powers and other things are concerned. The, even not just Blofeld, but this iteration of Blofeld. Yeah. Uh, and I like this. I like this Blofeld. I, the the faceless guy pegging the cat in some of the other ones. That is that's menacing, but it's so cartoony. Whereas this one, um, up until his Olympic skiing skills, I I think this is a good villain. He seems very smart and capable, but not over the top. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Telly Savalas performance is I don't know I it's it it really works for me. Maybe it's just because a lot of the other pieces around it work, but um, he just does seem like a a very 
rich man bent on having as much power as possible. Yeah. I, I think that it just totally hits the mark for me. Yeah, you are right. Like by the standards of Bond villains, um, he definitely uh, is more more interesting than most. You know, uh, he's this characterization of him. Yeah, exactly. He's not really 3D, but it's like the Diana Rigg thing. I think that you give a really talented performer a little bit and they're able to do a lot with it. And I think that's what this is. Yeah, for sure. And and we talked about this a little bit with the, the Tenet podcast where it's just like villains whose motivation is just, oh, I want everybody to die because that's what I want. Like that just doesn't that doesn't do anything for me. And that's more than half of the Bond villains in history, you know, and <laughs> yeah. And there's, um, I don't know, there's a, you are right that there's more of a, for lack of a better word, uh, humanity to um, Telly Savalas' version of, of Blofeld. I, I think maybe the thing that's really holding me back there is all I see is Dr. Evil. Like, it's just, yeah, just because know, of, of the age we are and, you know, it's just, it's impossible to, to not see it. <laughs> and all I see is Lord Michaels just from being <laughs> Dr. Evil. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Oh, I'll point out the uh, another odd thing, and um, this, this this just feeding into the uniqueness of Lazenby and so much about this movie is that we have Bond playing somebody else. Like mm. he mm-hmm. becomes Hillary, the genealogist, for a point, which is not something that's in Bond's normal bag of tricks. You know, it's he's either just flying under the radar and not getting noticed. Or he's James Bond. It's really odd to see him sort of inhabit somebody else. And we're watching, you know, we're watching Lazenby, who's not an actor, trying to become Sean Connery <laughs> as James Bond. Um, but we're also watching him be James Bond, inhabiting this academic. And there's just that that layer that they usually don't go that route with him. And I think that they felt because this wasn't someone who's established and we're already watching him play the part of an actor. It seemed okay for bond to play the part of somebody else. If you can track all those relationships, but um, I think it's an important one. And I think that it's something that doesn't come up a lot. And it was just by the unique situation that they found themselves in. And I don't think it's something that we're going to see a ton of. And I, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure somebody who is a bigger James Bond fan than me can point out um sometime that he's had an alias or something but i think it's particularly meaningful in this case no i i think that makes sense and also um i believe in the novel uh bond goes under cosmetic surgery to look like a different person and they were the filmmakers were thinking of using that as a way to introduce him as a new human being um playing james bond but uh they they just sort of went with look at the camera and talk about the other fellow instead um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um i don't know how that would have worked because that that part happens like halfway through the film so i, I don't know how they could have it uh totally made that work but you know um the other thing that i think we've talked about a little bit but about just the the lazenby bond is the idea of bond with any sort of vulnerability um and again low bar but um yeah. easily cleared in this movie you know just the idea that there's the bit, um, not even just him him crying at the end, giving that that performance when he's talking about how they have all the time in the world. Um, shout out to Louis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> shout out to romantic montages as a concept. Um, but the him at the ice rink, uh, ice rink where he right before he uh, runs into Tracy again, 
um, or runs into Tracy's leg and then realizes it's, it's attached to a human being. Um, he is legitimately kind of scared. Like he, he, he's, you can tell he's hiding, but you can see like some sort of emotion, like, Oh shit, I better hide. I'm, I, I don't know that I have a way out of this. And, and I think that's a really cool sequence and um, a very small thing that you just don't see a lot of in bond movies. And the editing really amps up uh, the franticness there to get you inside of his head, um, which again, sort of uh, really, um, really underlines the fact that that Bond is scared and, and you should feel frantic because that's how he feels. And again, like to jump forward to the, the other time when Bond movies have been called realistic with Casino Royale, like the, the Daniel Craig version of Bond is just like a boulder rolling through walls, you know, and, and there's no vulnerability, even in the, the quote unquote, um, realistic depiction of bond that we're still, uh, that we still have. But I, I just think that's this really interesting moment. It's like, um, you know, it's like those moments when you see Superman cry, you know, like it, it goes a long way. No, I, I think you're hundred percent right. And I think there's a few things that happen in that sequence. Um, Again, I'll point out one more silly thing before I point out the the thing. That... Is it the Olympic the Olympic jacket on the lead henchman? Because that's so funny. <laughs> the Olympic jacket is deeply funny, and I didn't have a really organic way to bring it up, but yeah, that's it's so funny every time you see it. Yeah, uh, but it's it, th- this is just so Austin Powers again, and I hate to hit that over and over because, as you said, it's just because of the age we are. Yeah. But, um, the fight in like the bell shack or whatever <laughs> when he's trying to be quiet yeah. and those things are associated with skiing you know it's, it's not a, a total anomaly that it's there um but it's it's him trying to be quiet and finding like the loudest building <laughs> possibly in the country at that moment you know what i mean um, and so that again that that's so funny and it, it it's it's you know it's a fine action sequence whatever but it's not the best one they have by far um and yeah it, it, it it's so goofy i can see it in any you know spy spoof movie but then you're right so he, he gets out and the fireworks are going off and he before he's met uh met up with tracy who really comes in and truly saves him you you really do get the sense that it would be over for him without her which yeah. something that we we like about this um why like absolutely wild coincidence that she's there but <laughs> yeah 100%, and yeah 100 but whenever we see bond in trouble it's like he's just gonna kill his way out of there or just run away he, he's just gonna be gone and that's mm. the solution to this um and again not a bond expert so someone could point this out to me but it's important i think that it still happens here is that he hides he hides his face mm-hmm. uh that's not what we get in bond movies because the person playing bond is just always i don't know one of the top four sexiest people on the planet <laughs> public standards you know what i mean yeah um and, and the fact that it's you know, he's a he, he's a big you know classically handsome model uh but he's he's hiding his face he puts his collar up and just he hides who the way he looks and looks down and that's just so counterintuitive to what we get with bond most of the time it's just i'm just this big good looking dude and I'm just going to fight anyone who gets near me or I'm going to leave the situation entirely mm-hmm. and for him to sort of um, have to compromise his look and I know it's such a small thing but just hiding any part of your face is not the the problem solving that we're used to seeing uh, Bond go through and it's the when you're a hammer every problem looks like a nail thing um, he 
faces he kind of looks to solve this problem in a way that we're not used to seeing bond solving this problem and again in temporal relationship to that bell scene which is so goofy they do something different than you would see in a bond movie they do something um sort of compelling and you really i don't know you you get the sense that he's scared as you said you you do get the sense that he's about to get caught and that um there really is nowhere for him to go and for as you're saying with the daniel craig one someone who's such a such a wrecking ball and someone who's just kind of impossible to scare or to to put in any real trouble um that really conveys the opposite in a successful way that we're not used to seeing with this really iconic character yeah for sure and um we we threw a couple jokes the way of the romantic montage um but i do feel the need to point out that yeah that 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 is a very like rote scene um of couple falling in love and we don't have time to show it this happening through various scenes so we'll just show them walking in various locations and you'll just assume they're falling in love because that's how movies work um and we'll... related or mutual interests or respect for each other yeah being a yep yeah exactly and and we have this original song that we want to try and sell um so we'll put that in there but i would i do think that the montage does still have an element of of uh thought running behind it that I think sort of sums up um, things that I love about this movie and that it's doing this very rote, like eye rolling thing, but it's just showing them doing all these activities together. Um, And the first half of the montage is showing this activity and this activity and this activity. And then the second half of that montage is showing those same activities again, but each of those moments ends with some sort of form of embrace, even when it looks really awkward because they're riding horses and James Bond (laughs) is trying to put his arm around Tracy. And it's so funny, but I do think that, um, that idea of at least trying to, um, do a montage that, you know, is just corny by nature. Uh, in a way that just has some sort of artfulness to it is, is nice. And I think I do enjoy that they set up the ring that comes back at the end. Um, I think that's a good touch and the circularity of this movie in general, um, of, of the beginning of the movie, uh, bond having a car zoom past him and setting in motion, everything that happens in the movie. Um, and the, car at the very end zooming past him and Tracy after they've gotten married. Um, and that leads to, uh, Bond stopping a car and just like never starting it again. You know, it just, it stops the movie, uh, dead. In, I was trying to find a way to avoid saying dead in its tracks, but, um, uh, I think that's a, that's a really, um, compelling thing that doesn't exist in a lot of these big, big movies that are, um seem like everything would be thought out ahead of time but just can't be because of of uh the weight of capitalism a lot of times um (laughs) and i just think that that's that that is something that it just shows that there's just thought there's some sort of compelling um under underlining thought throughout the whole movie and i just think that works even when the movie can't totally decide what to be it just works (laughs) all the time because at least the their heart is in the right place you know yeah, they're never saying "fuck it." Let's not let's not try something. They're 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 just, um, I don't know. They want to accomplish something, and I I enjoy that. That's my favorite kind of movie: big budget, huge movie where somebody is treating it like it's it's high art. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that brings the podcast to a nice full circle. <laughs> um. So yeah, thanks for listening to the McGuffman, and uh, check back next time. <laughs>